Amen. You may be seated. Let's take our Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter, sorry, Genesis chapter, never mind. Just scratch all of that. Exodus chapter 25. I don't know what we'd find in Genesis 27, but Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Last little while I've been studying the tabernacle and the different things in the tabernacle and preached a little while ago about the altar and the veil and last week the table of showbread. I wasn't planning on doing a series necessarily, but just as I've been studying, things have been coming out and it's been an interest to me and I pray and hope that it'll be a help to you. Exodus chapter 25, this morning, we're going to look at the candlestick, the candlestick. And uh, you might say, well, it doesn't really sound like a candlestick, it sounds like an oil lamp. And you would be correct, except remember this, the Bible, the book of Exodus was written about 4,500 years ago, it was long before we called, that's what a candlestick was. And so if the Bible says it's a candlestick, it's a candlestick, Right. And we've changed the definition, not them. We don't go back in time and change it. It's like this. Somebody will say, well, you know, Jonah was swallowed by a big fish, not a whale. God says that a whale is a fish. Scientists say, no, no, a whale is a mammal and a fish is a fish. But the Bible says God prepared a great fish in Jonah. But in the New Testament, he says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. So God says a whale is a fish. I'm not going to argue with God. We'll just go ahead and say that's okay. I have no problem with saying it's a mammal as long as you say it's a fish too, amen? Because that's what the Bible says. But we're not going to rename things, but we'll notice in the Bible that it's referred to as the candlestick. It's also called the lamp. And at times, the lamp stand. And so we'll look at some of this this morning. And so I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to teach for a little bit at the start, all right? We're going to make, here, here's, we're just going to have two points, some observations and then some applications, all right? So our observations is going to be teaching time. We're going to learn a little bit about this candlestick, and then we're going to try to draw out some Bible truths later on that I hope will help you. And by way of applications, we'll make some connections to the New Testament, and then I'm going to give you some cautions, all right? We see a couple things in the Bible that, that are cause for caution in our walk with God. And so let's look this morning at some observations, but let's read together, first of all, Exodus chapter 25 and verse 31. <clears throat> Thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. His shaft and his branches, his bowls, his knops, and his flowers shall be of the same. And six branches shall come out of the sides of it. Three branches of the candlestick out of the one side and three branches of the candlestick out of the other side. Three bowls made like unto almonds with a knop and a flower in one branch, and three bowls like almonds in the other branch with a knop and a flower, so in the six branches that come out of the candlestick. And in the candlestick shall be four bowls made like unto almonds with their knops and their flowers. And there shall be a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, and a knop under two branches of the same, according to the six branches that proceed out of the candlestick." Their knops and their branches shall be of the same, and it shall be one beaten work of pure gold. And thou shalt make the seven lamps thereof, and they shall light the lamps thereof, that they may give light over against it. And the tongs thereof and the snuff dishes thereof shall be of pure gold. Of a talent of pure gold shall he make it with all these vessels. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee, in the mount. Let's pray together. Father, help us, Lord, to take the word of God this morning and to understand 
uh, what this candlestick, this lampstand is, what it might look like, and, and as from general observation, help us to get some teaching, but then Lord, help us to extract the Bible principles we through, see throughout the Word of God. Lord, it's a difficult study, and I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would make it interesting to our minds, but more importantly, that the message may penetrate our hearts. Lord, help me, Lord, fill me with thy spirit, I surrender to you. And Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. In Exodus chapter 25, all we have here is instruction. As a matter of fact, it's not even all that detailed. And later on, we will find in Exodus chapter 26 and 27, there is more in-depth uh, detail. In Exodus 31, we see that as they begin to make this uh, candlestick or this, this lampstand, that God begins to give them even more detail. One of the things we notice is at the end of the chapter of Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40, it says, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee, in the mount. Remember, Moses received more than just the Ten Commandments when he was on the mountain. As a matter of fact, he was up there so long that the people thought he wasn't coming back. They made a golden calf and, and they began to have revelry and partying in the camp. And so they were, they were really concerned. But while Moses was up there, one of the things he saw was a pattern of the golden candlestick. God showed him something. As a matter of fact, it says that after the pattern which was showed thee, in the mount. I'd like to be a part of that conversation, wouldn't you? To see what God and, Abraham, uh, God and Moses talked about on that mountain and all the things that were revealed to Moses as God showed him his plan for the people of Israel. And what an amazing time. But I want you to go back to verse 31 and notice with me. Now up here, I have a candlestick. And this is not exactly like what the Bible tells us about today, but it's very similar and it represents, you'll see in the middle there's the Star of David. I bought this in Israel. I wanted something on my shelf that would remind me to pray for the Israelites, the Jews. And so I bought this uh, when I was in Israel in 2014. Now this is made of brass. It's not gold. I wish it were gold. That would be worth something, wouldn't it? So this is brass and I, I don't remember what I paid for it, and, uh, but I got it there in, in Bethlehem actually a little gift shop in Bethlehem. And uh, you'll notice the seven candlesticks that come out. Three on each side, just like the Bible talks about. Now, you might, you might say, well, I see sometimes I see that ones that have nine on them around Christmas time. Well, those were different. Now, this is called a menorah. Menorah is just a Yiddish word for candlestick. That's all it is. But there's two different types of menorah. This is the menorah that stood in the holy place that we read about today. It has seven different arms and seven different places for, to, to burn oil. And uh, the menorah that you might see at Christmas time has nine. How many of you have ever seen those? And that's a little bit different. So the middle one is sometimes a little higher. Pastor Axler just gave me one the other day, and, and I have that in my office as well. But the other, and what it is, is the number one, the one in the middle represents the Messiah. God's shining light and provision on the menorah, the, the Hanukkah menorah. And the other eight represent the eight days of Hanukkah. And the story is, is that during the Maccabean revolt, the, the city of Jerusalem was shut in and they couldn't get oil to put in the lamp. And they prayed and God kept the lamp burning for eight days, even though they had no oil. And so the Jews will light a candle every day on the day of Hanukkah to represent those eight days. But that is not the same as the seven-tiered candlestick. 
Now, this one, again, doesn't have everything. Now, if you were to see up here close, you would see it's got little lines on it. And those are representative of what the Bible is talking about. It says, on the, on the arms, put knobs. That's just our word for knobs, like a knob on a tree. And they were branches that were to represent like an almond tree. As a matter of fact, they would have little almonds on them. And at each spot, each arm would also have four bowls. Those bowls were where they put the oil and then run a wick down in there and it would burn out the top. And so they would burn uh, those lights uh, in the holy place and it had some representation that we'll talk about in a minute. But that's basically what it might look like, all right? Now, the Bible says in, in the first verse we read, verse 31, that it was beaten work. That means that it was taken from one piece of gold. It was not soldered or welded together in any way. They took one piece of gold, the Bible says a talent's weight, which was about 75 pounds, and they beat it, and they put holes in it where they needed to, and they manufactured it, and they chiseled away other parts. Can you imagine finding a piece of gold big enough to do that? But that's what they did. God must have provided them the gold to be able to do that. And, or, or they melted it all down first and built one big piece of gold, and then they beat this thing out of one piece. What talent to think about all the detail. Now, something struck me about that as I read that. God is a God of design. He loves beautiful things. If you could think and picture in your mind all the detail and the, and the ornateness of this, of this piece of furniture that would go into the holy place, God was very concerned with it. Now, look at Exodus chapter 26. We're just giving you some teaching right now. We'll get into the principles in a moment. Look at verse 30. In verse 30, we read about how they're going to set up the tabernacle. We're not at the temple yet. That comes later on. But God says, I want you to take a tabernacle. Everywhere you go in the wilderness, take this tabernacle and set it up every day. All right? Now, the Bible says in verse 30, And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof, which was showed thee in the mount. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen of cunning work with cherubim shall it be made. And thou shalt bring it upon the four pillars of shittim wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. Now, if you can with me, picture a fence. That's all this really was. They put up posts around and they ran these curtains in between them. And that caused a little courtyard to be formed. And that was called the court of the Gentiles. Within that court, they would put up another little structure to be covered with skins. And that was the holy place and the Holy of Holies. In the court of the Gentiles, we would find the brazen altar, and then we would find the wash basin before they would enter the holy place, the tribe of Levi or the priestly tribe. In that holy place, the Bible tells us what we would find there, if you'll read on with me, in verse 33, And thou shalt hang up the veil under the taches, and thou mayest bring in hither within the veil the ark of the testimony. So within the holy place, within the veil... They would put the Ark of the Covenant. And it says, And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And that would be the holy of holies. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. And thou shalt set the table without the veil. So now in the holy place we have the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Outside the veil in the holy place, not the holy of holies, he says, here's what I want you to put there. And the candlestick... Verse 35, over against the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. 
And thou shalt put the table on the north side. Now we learned last week that the north side, always when you walked into the tabernacle, you would go to the right to be on the north, always face the north. And so they would enter in and on the right would be the table of showbread. Straight ahead would be the altar of incense, but over to the left would be the candlestick. And it would be there to light the holy place. That was its purpose. And so remember, when it's covered in skins, it's a dark place. They had to enter in through a curtain, and then they would go in through another veil, the high priest into the Holy of Holies. It was a place of darkness lit only by the candlestick. In verse 36, Thou shalt make a hanging for the door of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, wrought with needlework, and thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold, and their hooks shall be of gold, and thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. So picture, if you can, this morning, that holy place. As we enter into the holy place, we look to our right and we see the table of showbread. We look to our left and we see the candlestick. And straight ahead is the altar of incense. And beyond that is the veil. We're not to go in there. That's for the great high priest. That is where he would go and make atonement for the sins of the people once a year. Now, look in Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27. Let's find out how this works. Verse 20. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure olive oil beaten for the light to cause the lamp to burn when? Always. Always. In the tabernacle of the congregation without the veil which is before the testimony. So understand what it's saying. In the tabernacle of the covenant, without the veil, so outside of the Holy of Holies, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons, now listen, shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever unto their generations on the behalf of the children of Israel. All right, so here's where we're going to get down to a couple things. By way of teaching. Verse 20, how long was this lamp to burn? Always. He said, well, wait a minute. Does that mean it never went out? No, it went out. When God says always here in verse 21, he's talking about any time the tabernacle is erected. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, one, one of the things they were to build back in Exodus chapter 26 out of gold was snuff dishes. That's to extinguish the flame. A snuff dish was to put over top and to, to allow the flame to go out. They were to build uh, these things that they could extinguish. And you say, why? Because they have to pack it up and carry it through the wilderness. So it didn't burn all the time. But it burnt whenever the tabernacle was assembled, whenever they took camp and they put it up for the night, they would have to put this candlestick in place. And it was the priest's job to light them up and make sure that they would run all night long. He said, well, what a minute, what a, why not always? Notice what I'm saying here. The Jewish Talmud says that this lamp in the middle always burned. It never went out. Now, the other six might extinguish from time to time. But from evening until morning, it was the priest's job to make sure all seven of these stayed lit. Now, I think there's a bit of a practical reason for this, but also a spiritual reason. 
I think the practical reason is, is when you build something like a tent of this nature and you put the skins over and all the rest, during the daytime, there might be some light that sneaks through underneath. There might be light that comes through in a corner. And so it was sufficient to have just the middle light lit during the day, perhaps. But at night in the cover of darkness, it was more practical to be sure that all the lamps were lit. And the Bible says it was Aaron and his son's job to make sure that those lamps burnt from evening until the following morning. That was important, and we're going to come back to that, so make sure you mark that in your mind this morning. So the middle lamp always burned unless they were traveling, but as long as the tabernacle was erected, that middle lamp was never to go out. At times, the other ones might burn out, but they were to be lit every night and stay lit throughout the night. I think also the spiritual reason is this. We know that the lampstand represents Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world, and he is never to be put out. Let me show you something here this morning. Now we understand a little bit but what that lampstand may have looked like. And we understand where it is situated in the holy place. And we understand that it represents Jesus Christ, the light of the world. But let me give you some applications. And let me give you a connection this morning to the light of the world. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Now this is, this is important, all right? Look at John chapter 8. We're going to give you some application here about this lampstand. Let's get something settled in our mind right now. When Jesus Christ was out preaching and teaching, who was he primarily speaking to? Anybody know? The Jews, right? That's, that's who were there. The Romans might have heard from time to time, and he, of course, gave testimony to Pilate and others, but his primary, he, he says, I, I've come to the lost house of Israel. I, he says, that, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you together. And so he was always praying for Israel and, and ministering to Israel and speaking to Jews. And in John chapter 8, it's no different. So he says this in verse, chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. So we know he's talking to Jews because he's in the temple. And the scribes and the Pharisees get upset about it, so they went and found this woman, and they brought him unto him, or brought her unto him, and says, She has been taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. 
Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Well, let's stop right there just for a moment. Picture what is going on. The Lord Jesus Christ is ministering in the temple and these Pharisees drag in this woman taken in sin. The accuser of adultery caught in the very act. They say the law says we should stone her. What do you say? Of course, we know the story Jesus said, but he is without sin among you. Be first to cast a stone at her. And something very strange happens. Perhaps for the first time in their lives, those Pharisees came under conviction. And one by one, they begin to go. Now, don't miss something I believe is going on here. The Lord Jesus Christ has been stooped down. The woman, I believe, cast on the ground before him. He's stooped down. He's writing whatever he's writing. I don't know, maybe the names of their girlfriends. I don't know what he's writing in that sand. But when he looks up, all he sees is her. He says, woman, where are thine accusers? And she wipes the tears from her eyes and she looks around. And with a shocked look on her face, she says, there's none, Lord. They're gone. How many of you know that Jesus is good at answering questions you don't even have to ask? What would your question be if you were that woman? What happened to them all? They, they were bound they were going to stone me. They were bound they were going to kill me. What happened? And Jesus answers the question in the next verse. Look what he says to her. Verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Here's what I think happened. What happened to all these men that were accusing me, Lord? I'll tell you what happened. The light showed up. And every Jew that was in that temple would have went, is he talking about the light in the holy place? They would have known for a fact that's what he was referring to. Because it was also known as the light of the world in there. It was the light that showed people how to get... Think about that dark place. It was a place of darkness in there, shut out by these four types of animal skins that were closing it in and keeping the light out. And the only thing to allow you to find the presence of God in the Holy of Holies was the lampstand. And Jesus now stands before this woman and he says, I'm the light of the world. If you come to me, you won't walk in darkness anymore. Do you know what happened next? The woman stood up and he said, go thy way and sin no more. I believe she got saved. And Jesus knew the change in her heart right away. And he says, you're different now. Don't sin anymore. Go thy way. In other words, he says, the light of the world has shown you to God. And you've seen the Father now. And you've, you've encountered mercy. But the light that is shining today, Jesus, the light of the world, it's brought conviction over these scoundrels. But it has shown you the way to God. Look at this, what he says. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. Listen, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. 
Jesus says, that's what I'm showing people to the Father. They can find the Holy of Holies. Look at John chapter 9. We're going to build on that thought now. Look what it says in chapter one or chapter 9 and verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of what? God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is yet day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. What is the light of the world doing? Well, in the holy place, it's showing people how to get to the holy of holies where the presence of God is. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and he took that woman taken in adultery, and he showed her how to get to God, how to be forgiven of her sins, how to be cleansed, how to be changed. And now we see a blind man, and he says, I am the light of the world, and I'm showing him the works of the Father. That's what the light does. But there's an interesting thing he says here. In John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. But in John chapter 9, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You see, what's the difference? John, writing in John chapter 1, writing in the past tense, he said this about Jesus. He was that light. He said, wait a minute, is the light of the world gone? Is he not part of our world today? Notice Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Physically, Jesus has gone back to heaven. But look what he says in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 13. The Sermon on the Mount, he says, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is sense for good for nothing. But to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Do you see the progression here? In Exodus chapter 25, the lampstand's job was to allow the high priest to find his way to the Holy of Holies, to the very presence of God. We as children of God are made kings and priests. The Bible says we are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. We can go to the Holy of Holies, but we still need the light to show us how to get there. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by, by me, but he is also the light of the world that shows us how to get to God. But here's what Jesus said. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But once Jesus left and ascended unto heaven, he said this. Ye are the light of the world. The job has not changed. He's saying it is now your job to point people to God. He said, how do you know that? Because verse 16 says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father, which is in heaven. Friends, we're just to be little lampstands. That's what we are to do. To be holding up the light of Jesus Christ. You say, does that mean we're like Jesus? No, we're to be conformed to the image of the Son and we're changing and growing every day. We are not Christ, but we are to be like Christ in the sense that we're pointing people to God. 
Show, listen, even the children know this, don't they? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine till Jesus comes. I'm going to let it, you won't have to let it shine after Jesus comes because he'll do all the shining we need. Amen. He is the light of the world. But he said, you are the light of the world. We are to shine for Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105. You guys know this verse, don't you? Here's another application. Thy word is a what? A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I never thought about this correlation before. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the Word. He is the living Word, and we have the written Word. And here's what the Bible says, Thy Word is a lamp. He said, well, I just, I just don't know. I just, can we really know God? Do you know what a lamp does? It allows us to find that presence of God in the holy place. So I, I, just don't, I just don't sense his presence. Get out your lamp. Get into the word of God. Because the, the, the entire purpose of the lamp, of the candlestick, was to help that priest find his way to the holy of holies. You know, we, we can complain all we want that we don't know God personally. We don't have a relationship with Him that is intimate and, and we, we don't sense His presence. But friends, if you're not going to get the lamp out and look into the Word of God, you'll never find Him. Spend some time in His Word. Let me give you another connection today. And we're just looking at some things here that, that we, we see as a matter of symbolism and a matter of application today. But look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to try to recall something to your mind that we read in passing a few moments ago from John chapter 8. But look at Matthew chapter 26 and look at verse 36. Matthew chapter 26. The Lord Jesus Christ has already had the Last Supper and he's retreated to pray. And the Bible says that Judas has gone out and agreed to betray him. The Bible says in verse 36, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. We remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. We were there when we were in Israel. Gethsemane, does anybody know what Gethsemane is? There's actually Gethsemanes all over Israel. This is the only one you've heard of. This is the only one we read about in the Bible. Gethsemane is just simply an oil press. An oil press. And it makes sense. It's there at the Mount of Olives. There's all kinds of olive trees. And they would take those olives and they put them in and it had a grinding stone in there and a big tub. And they would grind that with maybe a donkey or something go around and they would grind those and oil would come out, olive oil. You'll remember in Exodus chapter 27 that the Israelites were to provide olive oil, pure olive oil to the temple to light that stand, that lampstand, that candlestick. He said, what is your point? Where did Jesus go to pray often? He went to Gethsemane. That was his favorite place to meet with his father, his favorite place to pray. Now think about this. In John chapter 8, 
We already read it, and you may not have caught it because I just read it quickly. In John chapter 6 and 7, we find a very busy time in the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry. All kinds of things are happening. He's healing people and teaching and preaching all over. He's very, very busy. In John chapter 8, he retreats for a night out of Jerusalem. And in chapter 8, verse 2, it says he comes into the temple and he begins to teach, and that's when they bring the woman in, taken in adultery. But do you know what verse 1 says? It says that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane for the night. Now think about this. When the Lord Jesus Christ was in the height of his ministry and he was tired and he was busy, where did he go? He went to pray. But why would he go to a place called Gethsemane? Why was that his place? Don't miss the picture. Because the light of the world went to a place to get fresh oil. I never saw that in the scriptures before. The Lord Jesus Christ as a picture of the light of the world, of that lampstand. So I need refreshing. I need to talk to my father. And where did he go? He went to a place where there's an oil press. I don't mean to say that he physically took oil and, and drank it or cooked with it or rubbed it on or anything. I'm just saying the imagery is there that Jesus said, I need to be refreshed. I need fresh oil from God. The Bible tells us uh, over and over again about the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where it says that the Holy, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit. That toy ties it to the oil, the anointing oil. Listen, I wonder this this morning. If the Lord Jesus Christ needed something fresh from God, how often do we? I'm going to tell you, I'm a lot more frail than Jesus was. I don't have the walk with God that Jesus had. And if Jesus would retreat in John chapter 8 and many other times in the Bible to this place where he could get the anointing of God, the fresh oil from God and time and prayer with God and be revitalized in His Spirit, how much more do we need it to spend that time with the Lord? Now let me give you two things. I've done a lot of teaching. Let me give you some preaching for a moment, okay? Let me give you a couple cautions. Look in 1 Samuel with me this morning. We're almost done. A whole lot of teaching and a little bit of preaching at the end, but let me give you uh, some preaching. I'll tell you, it, it meddled with my heart. First Samuel. Now let me paint the picture for you in First Samuel chapter 3. A couple things are taking place. Number one, the temple has been built. Okay? Tabernacle is no more. That means that if we go into the holy place, now in a place of brick and mortar, that lamp should never go out. It is no longer being put out to travel to the next destination, to wander in a wilderness. It's no longer in Shiloh and then later Jerusalem and different places. It's, it's permanent now. It's in Jerusalem. It's in a place of brick and mortar. It's, it's, it's designed now is to run forever. And each night the priests would come in and they would light all of those candlesticks. But look what the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. 
It came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see, and ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. What's wrong with that? The lamp went out. Now, didn't Aaron get told, you and your sons, you keep that lamp burning all night? And we know that, according to Jewish law, that that middle candle would never go out. Exodus chapter 27, it says, it's to burn always. As long as it's erected, the tabernacle is erected, it is to burn always. It is never to go out. And the Bible says Samuel is a child and he's been given to Eli and Eli is ministering the temple. And if you'll read on, we won't take the time to do it today, God comes to Samuel that very night. The lamp is burned out. God comes to Samuel that very night and he says, Samuel, He runs into Eli's room and he says, you called for me? And he says, no, go back to bed. Go lie down. It's not morning yet. Samuel, three times this happens. And finally, Eli says, I perceive that it's the Lord. The next time you hear your name, say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And Samuel did that very thing. And God pronounced judgment upon Eli. You say, why? Because he had two sons that were working in the priesthood. Now, I don't believe this is a commentary on rebellious children. I don't believe that. Some people have said, well, you don't restrain your kids. And listen, I don't believe that. I believe the problem was because they were priests in the house of the Most High God. And Eli was having problems with them, and he should have removed them from that position. They shouldn't have been ministering unto the Lord when they were in that uh, rebellious state. And so he says, we go through the story, and he says, I'm going to remove Eli. I've rejected him. But notice when he did it. These boys have been rebellious for a while. They have been making a mockery of the house of God for quite some time. They have been lying with temple prostitutes. They have been doing all kinds of strange things and, and causing a lot of havoc for the people of Israel. And yet God never removed Eli until this happened. What? He let the lamp go out. He let the lamp go out. You say, why is that a different night? Here's why. Because when he failed in his duty to God, God said, I can no longer use you, Eli. You haven't kept the oil full. You've let the lamp go out. Yeah, your sons are a mess. They've been a mess for a while, and I've rejected you from being... But, but through all of that, you at least kept the lamp on, but not tonight. Why would the Scripture say the lamp went out? Because it was a condemnation against Eli. It was a sim- symbolic act that Eli was no longer able to serve God. You know, the Apostle Paul said this, I keep my body under subjection lest I become a castaway. Listen, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. The Bible calls it eternal life and everlasting life. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. If you can lose it, it's not everlasting. But I believe that we can, we can lose the ability to be effective for God. And that's what happened to Eli. And Eli took uh, that uh, anointing, if you will, off of Eli and he put it upon Samuel. And eventually Samuel will be the next great prophet and priest of God. Listen, we have to be very careful, and this is a caution to us. 
we must be very careful that we don't, listen, some, some people get all upset when you talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We, well, we don't, we're not charismatics. No, no. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be submitted to the Spirit, surrender to the Spirit, obey the Spirit of God. The Bible says you can grieve Him, you can vex Him, you can lie to Him. The Spirit of God is the third person of the Trinity. He is a real uh, personal force upon our lives, and we must obey Him. And if we don't have the anointing and the filling of the Holy Spirit of God, we cannot be used of God. We'll only be in the flesh. Eli found that out as God removed his anointing from him. Let me show you another thing. Turn to Revelation, and we're we're just about done. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 12. John the Revelator is on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's day, and he was in the Spirit, by the way. It says in verse 12, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now jump down, if you will, to verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest to my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, you might say, I don't, I don't see the correlation, but I don't believe it's a coincidence at all that there are seven golden candlesticks in Revelation. We understand in Revelation, they represent the seven churches of Asia. Ephesus being the first, and we'll look at that in a moment. But I want you to notice something. Read in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou cannot... Bear them that are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and hast for my name's sake, hast labored, and hast not fainted. And nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now stop right there. The Lord Jesus Christ is judging this church, and he says to the church at Ephesus, you've got a great church constitution, and you follow it right down to a T. He says, you, 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 you're right on a lot of things and you, you cast out that which is evil and you, you're just right and you found out these false prophets and said they're apostles and you're doing a great job and you've got a great statement of faith and you're, you, boy, you look like a church and you're following right down, but there's something that's wrong. And here's what it is in verse four. Thou hast left thy first love. You're so caught up in playing church. You don't love me anymore. You're not doing it because you love the Lord. You're doing it because of the pride in your heart. Well, bless God, our church is this and our church is that, and we take a stand for something, and but you don't actually love the Lord. What a horrible thing. Do you know how the Taj Mahal was built? Does anybody know? It was built as a tribute 
to a king's wife. When she died, he, he took her sarcophagus or a coffin, it was black, and he laid it in the middle and he built this great hall all around it. It took years to build, and as he was surveying the work one day, he came and he climbed up to the top of it, and it was almost complete, and he was walking up there with others, and he looked down and he said, what's that black box down there? He said, that's your wife. That's why we're building all this. Sometimes our churches are like that. We got all the right things going on, and, all, and God didn't say they were bad things they were doing. But our motives and our purposes are not because we love the Lord. And notice what happens next. Verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do thy first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Eli let his light for Jesus go out. The church at Ephesus was going to lose their light because Jesus said, you're really not a church at all. I'm going to take it away. I'm going to Take this light, and I'm going to put it up in the attic of heaven somewhere because you're not using it anyway. You remember what the light was for? It was to show people how to get to God. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let your light, therefore, shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Eli let his burn out. God says, Eli, I can't use you anymore. There was a church that said, we're doing all the right things. But God said, but when they come to your church, nobody feels the love of Christ. You're all law and no truth. They're all truth and no love. All law and no love. All law and no grace. All truth, no mercy. He says, because of that, if you don't repent, get back to the first thing where you loved me, and showed other people how to get to me, I might as well just take that light and put it away. See, the candlesticks to show people how to get to God. Let me ask you this today. How's your light burning? How's your light burning? I don't ever want to be an Eli. I think there's been times in my life where I've been an Eli, where my lights burn pretty low at times and even out. We're just not a good testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want our church to ever become the church at Ephesus where God comes along and says, i got to take away the lamp because you're just not a church. By the way, a church without a lamp is not a church. If we're not showing forth Jesus Christ, what are we? That's our purpose is to glorify Him. It's His church. He's the head of it. We're to let His light shine, not ours. It's not about our talent. It's not about how well Daniel plays piano or Bailey plays the organ or somebody sings in the choir or how good a teacher we have in the junior church or Sunday school. How many buses we have in the road. It's not about any of that. It's about how do we lift up Jesus Christ? 
Those are all tools. They're all wonderful things. They're not wrong. God didn't say they were doing anything wrong at Ephesus except this. You don't love me anymore. Because you don't love me, I don't want you representing me. So I'm going to remove your light, your candlestick. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment this morning. Let me ask you, how's your light shining? How's your light shining? That candlestick had one singular purpose. It was so that the priest could find his way around that holy place. He could find the bread. And he could find the holy of holies to the very presence of God. Boy, we could use some fresh oil, couldn't we? Some filling of the Holy Spirit. But let's just get down to that last couple questions this morning. Are we following after Eli personally? Are we following after Ephesus as our church? I pray to God that we aren't. Let's stand to our feet. And if God has spoke to your heart, the altar is open. Maybe somebody here today say, I'm not sure I'm saved. If I were to die today, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. We'd like to help you with that. We'll take a Bible and show you what it means to have eternal life. Well, friends, would you pray? Would you pray for our church that God would never choose to remove our candlestick? Would you pray and seek out your own heart? God, how's my light? How's my testimony? Am I pointing people to Jesus?